Would you please bow with me in, in prayer? Our God, you are uh, pure and holy and righteous. Yet you, we are filthy and sinful and unrighteous. How can we stand before you if it weren't for the right man that's on our side, Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate before you? Lord, we are sinners, presently sinners, yet just in your eyes through Christ the just and his shed blood on our behalf, of which, again, every Sunday, every day, every Sunday is a reminder of this great gospel truth, Lord, that we live and move and have our being through Christ, and we celebrate that again today as a gathered community. And, Lord, we sit before your word, which is pure and righteous. Lord, give us eyes to see and to receive with glad hearts what your word has to say to the church. And help us as we leave this place to walk in your ways. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's the year 1510. A young, devout German Catholic monk named Martin Luther makes his dream trip to the holy city of Rome. The Augustinian monk with a, a partner was sent there to, with a, uh, from his group to plead a case and a dispute before the Pope. He was obviously excited to go regardless of why. He was so excited to be around holy folks and to participate in the mass at sacred shrines and to see and be in the presence of holy relics, little bits and pieces of the, the holy cross he'd get to see and bones of the, the martyrs. However, this month-long stay proved to be devastatingly disappointing. The clergy in Rome were flippant when it came to the ceremonies, saying, Pasa, Pasa, get a move on. Get it over with. Let's go. Let's hurry up. Get done. The people in Rome were awful in their self-indulgent behavior. They were gluttons and drunkards and foul-mouthed. Well, this month of disillusionment for Luther played a pivotal role in his life after this. Of course, it was seven more years before he would write the 95 Theses, which were points of debate involving the sale of indulgences or payments to the church to uh, shorten the, uh, your, your relatives getting their time in purgatory shortened. He wouldn't write much about justification by faith or the authority of Scripture over the Pope until around 1519, 15, 1519 to 1520. But these, during these seven to ten years, it was a slow and steady battle understanding what was going on. And as a reflection of that battle, he wrote the words that we, to the song we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But he kept asking, how can a holy God accept sinful men? If it is by faith alone and Christ alone and not through the sacraments of the church or the declaration of popes, then the word of God has to be an authority, not the pope, right? Amen. Was repentance just a mindless church ritual you did weekly or, or paying a fee? Or is it a 
the daily renewal of the Christian. Many of these questions started in this abysmal trip to Rome where the young Luther saw the church leaders as evil and lazy shepherds. Luther, later in his life, after his banishment from the church of Rome, would write and teach much to the evangelicals, as they were called then before they were called Lutherans. He would write extensively on church order and pastoral issues from a pastor's heart, for he was, yes, a professor, yet also a pastor. The corruption in the leadership Luther and many others saw did not sour them on the church or the pastoral office, however. It just made them understand the importance of godly leadership for the health and continuation of the, God, of the church and her gospel. So why is church leadership so important for the church? And if it's so important, how are we as church members supposed to relate to the leadership and choose our leadership? Well, this morning's text will answer that for us. So please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 25 as we continue our study through this pastoral letter concerning church structure. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. And in it we'll see that the church must honor her leadership. She must also protect the sanctity of her leadership. And then we will see how we are to respond to what the scriptures teach us here. But first, the church must honor her leadership. But first, let's look at verse 21. Verse 21, chapter 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Let's stop there. So, so, so why start there? Well, this passage is centered around this verse. It serves as, as the foundation of what precedes and what follows it. There's a, a weightiness, a seriousness to what he is saying here. It's not that the other things weren't important. They are divinely inspired just like the rest. But what Paul puts here is he's saying, please listen as the, uh, this. I declare this. I command this with the Father, the Son, and all the heavenly angels as witness here. I command you to keep these instructions and do not turn to the right or to the left. Do not take bribes. Do not be pressured. Do not show partiality to friends. Keep these instructions tightly because there is a whole lot on the line with these decisions. What decisions? Well, how to handle leadership in the church. But we know that in Christ, we are all priests unto God. We believe, along with the reformers, in the priesthood of all believers. However, the church must designate men to hold the office as representatives to preach, to teach, to baptize, to oversee communion, to oversee souls. And this is a heavy responsibility that no one is to take lightly. Therefore, Paul gives Timothy and the church instructions on the, as to how to properly treat the church's leadership. He starts off with how the church is to honor their representatives, their pastor elders. So look at verses 17 through 19. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So first, Paul makes a slight distinction in the elders in verse 17. Now, this passage would imply that all elders are indeed worthy of honor, reverence, and respect. It's not an easy role by any stretch of the imagination, for they are responsible for our souls and will be held accountable to God for the flock, as Hebrews 13, 17 teaches us. However, there is a slight distinction he's making there. Let those who rule, or better translation is to who lead or oversee or oversee or manage, be worthy of double honor. Okay, well, all of them oversee and should serve well. He's, all of them are able to teach. He's not distinguishing between bad elders and good elders here, ruling elders, between ruling elders or teaching elders here. If you remember from uh, chapter 4, verse 10, and chapter 5, verse 8, Paul uses the word, it's often translated as especially. He uses this word as a, as to signify a clarification, a specificity to what he has said, a zeroed-in statement, if you will. Those who rule lead well, that is, especially those who, uh, specifically those who labor in preaching and teaching, literally in the word and teaching, the ministry of the word and teaching. These are among those, among our elders, who are vocationally pastors in the church. They gain their living from ministry. They are, de- they are dedicated to the full-time service. It's not that all elders aren't teachers, for they are to be qualified to teach. They all teach, but some are dedicated to it full-time, while others aren't. So these men are not only to be ones honored, all of them are to be honored, but Paul goes on to say that they're to be double honored. So what does he mean by this? Well, if you remember from last week concerning widows, Paul calls on the church to honor widows who are truly widows. It doesn't mean that we don't honor and respect all widows, but there's a distinction between uh, the ones who are truly widows and those who are not. You know, yes, and all of this, generally speaking, means to honor and respect, but practically speaking, it means to take care of their material needs as well. So what Paul is getting at here in verses 17 through 18 is the same argument he makes in 1 Corinthians 9, if you remember that, when he says that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel, by the gospel. That was a right that you indeed notice that he had, if you remember that he gave up for their sake, for the sake of the Corinthians. He gave up his rights to receive payment. Now he is calling on the church here, the church in Ephesus, he's calling on them to take care of their full-time overseers. Again, how does Paul argue this? From the Old Testament and Jesus' own recorded words from the Gospels. Those who labor should be paid. Not lavishly, but enough where they could focus in on their job as servants of the church rather than worrying about putting food on the table for their family. And then Paul then adds another protection for the leadership of elders. And this would go for all elders, full-time or not. Do not accept a charge against an elder unless there are multiple witnesses. Why? 
Or those who are in any type of leadership are lightning rods for lies, for slander, for bullying, for criticisms, for complaints. False accusations are rampant for those, anybody in leadership, and elder pastors are not immune to it. And this doesn't mean that elders are above sin, for Paul gives instructions to how to handle that, and we'll see that momentarily. But elders are to be given the benefit of the doubt when accusation comes. So this is how the church is to honor its leadership, by protecting the reputation and making sure that they are taken care of. So how can we honor our leadership? Well, in the past, have you publicly criticized your church's leadership? Repent of that. If you have an issue, you go to that person directly. You do not, you do not, you do not go to others. You go to them directly. And if you're in a situation in which someone else is criticizing your church's leadership, you shut that down. And you tell them to go immediately to that person, that person in leadership or whoever it is. You don't allow gossip and slander. You pray for your leaders. And this is the best thing you can do for them. And I know all of you do do, do this. So we want to continue in this and encourage others as well. Encourage elders by sending notes and kind words. And when we as a church gather together to make budget decisions, and that's a a responsibility of the whole congregation, not just the leadership. Let's review our importance of the ministry of the word. Let it be reflected there. So we honor our leadership by praying for them, encouraging them, making sure that their families are provided for, and we protect their reputation. We must honor our leaders. Now next, Paul then provides a warning to Timothy and to the church to remember when it's choosing its leaders. That leads to the second point. The church must protect the sanctity of her leadership. Look at verses uh, 20 through 25 of chapter 5. As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing for partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent elements. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So they were not to accept an accusation of an elder unless there are at least two to three witnesses to confirm the wrongdoing. And this principle dates back to the Old Testament law. There must be two to three witnesses to substantiate a claim. If after confronted with these accusations, he still persists in what he's doing, he is not repentant, then he is to be publicly reprimanded in front of the whole church so that the rest, referring to the other elders, would walk in solemn humility and fear that they take heed lest they fall. Just like the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. As it served as a warning to the church. This is a warning. 
Now, this passage, this would indicate that matters would have been what we would call uh, private sin, not publicly out there. Okay, so it would have to be publicly exposed if not repented of. In other words, it's not publicly known and it's not necessarily against someone else. He is sinning of it in and of himself that is not known to the congregation. Now, an adulterous affair would fit under public sin. That's cut and dry. It doesn't go through these channels. It would be immediately apparent, and dismissal would have to be immediate. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 type of incidents here. Public drunkenness fits a violent anger in public spaces. This would be what we consider public sin. Things that it would not go through these channels. It would be already out there, already a stain and a black eye. But in this case, this passage is more likely private sins, that if there is no sign of repentance, would need to be made public. It would need to go before the church. Stealing from the church budget, laziness, unbridled tongue. Several of these, to name a few. And if these things are noticed by multiple witnesses, this should lead to a gentle confrontation which hopefully leads to true repentance and and reparation. But if not, it is to be made public. The church, all of us as members, are responsible to protect the sanctity, the irreproachableness of our church offices. So Paul here instructs Timothy concerning current leaders. Now, what about the future? Look at verse 22 again. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and take, or, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We are all impatient beings. We like things here and now. And for those in leadership, uh, we want so bad to have help. We're worn out, and we need someone to step in and to help shoulder the load. And the temptation is to observe quickly and say, hey, this person could do the job. This is not wise. And it's hard now, but Timothy, you must be patient. Who the church appoints as a leader is a momentous decision. The spiritual well-being of the flock is dependent upon this. I know you will need help, Timothy, but trust in the Lord and his timing that the right, right ones will come along. For in being hasty on the laying in of hands, which is a reference to the designating someone to an office in the church, for being hasty and putting individuals in leadership that don't belong, he would then be participating in their sin. He would bear some of the responsibility for their sin and his hastiness. His company would corrupt him. So be careful, Timothy. Be careful, Timothy. Be careful, church in Ephesus. Keep yourself pure and holy. Paul goes on in verses 24 and 25 to show what to look like, but look, look for in these men. And this requires patience and diligent observation. But first, let's, let's interrupt that and deal with this, uh, this parenthetical statement here in verse 23. Look at verse 23 again. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. <clears throat> I won't spend much time on this, but it needs to be addressed because it is indeed still the word of God. 
And that's the great thing about the New Testament letters. They are real letters. They're not polished and edited. This is a real personal letter. And this sentence functions kind of as a digression from the topic. You know, some try to say how it ties in, but it it really is kind of a digression from the topic. It is kind of an interruption of uh, Paul saying, oh, in case I forget, remember this. Take care of yourself, Timothy. Wine in that day and age was also used as a, a medicine. And not only that, there were few clean water sources. So it's Paul the pastor taking care of his protege. He's showing for us an example of how to take care of the flock. So to read anything more into this is speculative at best. I shouldn't read much into it, but he is simply taking care of his brother, not just for his soul, but for his body. Okay, now back to the point. What are you going to look for, Timothy, in a potential leader? Looking at verses 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Who people truly are will be revealed. For some, it's immediately obvious. Their wickedness is in plain sight. You know immediately that unless they repent and believe the gospel, judgment is coming upon them. Clearly, black and white. However, with some, they may for a while appear to be godly and wholesome. And this is likely similar to the false teachers that we saw in chapters 1 and chapter 4. They seem to start out well and good, but then their true hearts and motives and teachings were revealed. So because of this, Timothy, in the church, it must take time to observe these folks. I mean, doesn't he mention this in the overseer qualifications of chapter 3? He must not be a new convert. And this would imply time, uh, time needed to observe a man's life, observe his reputation. Likewise, look again at verse 25. This man's godliness, his faithfulness to the Lord, is evident. He walks in faithfulness and good works. Even when, when it is done in secret, which Jesus commanded us to do, <laughs> practice our righteousness in secret, it will be found out eventually. Godliness is on display. The aroma of Christ is a pleasant aroma and fills the room. But in all of these instances, it takes time to observe. Now, are we given a, a specific time frame? No, no. We need wisdom and patience and dependence upon the Spirit to give us guidance in all this. But remember this. We as members of his body, we as members of the church are responsible for the sanctity, the irreproachableness of its leadership and to make sure we have godly representatives. Remember, we as members of the church are responsible for one another. Anyone who dismisses church membership is going to have a hard time reading the New Testament letters. Think about how many one another's are listed in the New Testament. 
on top of being responsible for one another, we as a church body are responsible for the teaching in the church and her leadership. How could someone read the letter to the Galatians and the Corinthian letters and not understand this? Paul, in those letters, puts the responsibility of the orthodox teaching on the church's shoulders, not just the elders. And a part of that responsibility is to be careful and diligent about who steps in as a leader. Many of you have heard horror stories of men in leadership in churches, and they've wreaked havoc. You've heard it through news, social media, podcasts, and sadly, some of you have experienced in previous churches. Some have taught false things, but he's a nice guy. We can't confront him. Or maybe he's not necessarily a false teacher, but an ungodly character. It's pretty evident. But many in the church have been afraid to confront him because the person has a good rapport with the power brokers in the church. Another pastor may have had an, a scandalous affair. But hey, we need to extend grace and forgiveness and restoration to this man. Yes, we extend grace and understand there is forgiveness of sin and God can still use this person. But restoration to the office of overseer is no longer on the table. Above reproach is no longer a qualification for this man. Now, please don't misunderstand. This does not mean the leadership is perfect and sinless. There's not a day in which an elder or a pastor can wake up and not say... Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on me. All of us, indeed, are in need of forgiveness of sins, in need of repentance every day. However, elders, the church leadership, their lives are not to display behaviors that are doing public harm to the church, being a poor witness. Now, as all of us, as we grow in godliness, our sensitivity to sin grows. We actually feel, this is the crazy thing, we actually feel more sinful as we grow. But practically speaking, we, our lives are marked by godly trajectory. So for an elder in the church, their life is to be marked by humility and repentance and love and Christ-likeness. Elders are, ought to be more sensitive to sin in their own lives than anybody. How could they have a zeal to preach the gospel if they don't have a zeal against their own sin? Elders have to rehearse the gospel in their lives daily, that God is holy and perfect. I am sinful and unworthy and deserving of his eternal wrath. But thanks be to God that he, that he sent his son to die as a payment for my sins, and that he was raised that I may have eternal life. Our sinfulness reminds us of our need of God and our Savior. And this drives our pursuit of holiness. Now, if we do this as a church, what Paul instructs us here, if we practice what Paul exhorts Timothy and the church in Ephesus, it doesn't mean it will eliminate all problems and potential bad leaders. For Paul warns Timothy in his second letter of what is to happen. But, but we eliminate a lot of potential problems along the way. 
Just think about our membership process here as a church. To become a member here, you must go through an elder interview. You turn in a, a written testimony. If not biblically baptized, we, we baptize you. And then your testimony is sent to the church body for two weeks so that everybody knows who you are and knows your story. We have a statement of faith, a summary of what the Scripture teaches, and a church covenant, a summary of what Scripture teaches us to live as a church body. We have these two documents that you are to agree to. And then you're put before the church for a vote of affirmation. So even with church members, we are careful about who we let in. We don't just have someone walk down the aisle or, or raise a hand and say, hey, they're a church member now. Which, by the way, is an open invitation for wolves. And many churches who have been doing this for years are now paying a very costly price. No, membership is, is a commitment we all make to each other to hold, hold responsibility for one another. And if that's the case, how much more so should we be careful about who leads in the congregation? It's a big decision for anybody or for all the church to be in prayer. Why? Because we, you and I, as members, are called to protect the sanctity, the irreproachableness of the leadership office in the church. So, to summarize, the, the latter part of this chapter 5 of this epistle instructs us that the church is to honor and also protect the sanctity of her leadership. We are responsible to our leadership and for our leadership. Honor them with respect. This is our responsibility to them. We must be active and diligent about who we select as leaders, I potential leaders, and, and study their lives. And this is our responsibility for them. And if you remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 3, this letter examining the, the qualifications for overseers, we know that we are constantly looking for who God is, is raising up as a leader. And we, we keep these qualifications always in mind. I mean, Except for one, all of them are on godliness, holiness, character. Just like Martin Luther, many of you have been disillusioned by church leadership in your past and churches you've been a part of. But remember, God always has a remnant. He will always have his church for the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. And he, and if he has his church, he will give the church what she needs. And in this case, faithful leadership. Martin Luther knew that. And you should know that as well. But we, we put our eternal trust in Christ alone. Not in any elders, not in any great preachers, not in any great personalities. And see, that's where we get ourselves in trouble here. When we put our trust in men. No, we trust Christ alone. But if we trust in him alone, we trust what he says about the church. And we trust that he will continually give us the leaders we need. 
And maybe you're here this morning through an invite, or you saw the website, or you just drove by and wanted to check this place out. And you've noticed we, we talk a lot about and sang a lot about this person named Jesus, about his death and resurrection. This is the gospel. This is why we gather together. This is the sole reason we gather together, because of his gospel. This is the only basis for the forgiveness of sin, the blood of Christ. He is the only way sinful people like you and me can stand before a holy God. And if you turn from your sin and trust in him, Jesus, you will receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the peace which surpasses all understanding. Not from good works, not from rituals, not from being a good moral person, but only in trusting on the cross can we stand before our Creator. Sinner, yet just in God's sight. So trust in him and call upon him now as we pray. Oh, Lord, call people to yourself. As we're reminded in this this time of the year of the glorious gospel, the gospel that many folks, men and women, have died over, the only hope for mankind, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and the hope that's only in his blood. And Lord, you've established your church to be a witness to the watching world, to be a hospital for sinners, to be a light shining in the darkness. Lord, help us continue in this, Lord, and not forget what you teach us, Lord. Make us rememberers of what you've taught us, Lord. You've not left us in the dark. And Lord, as, we, as the church grows, as we start planting churches, Lord, give us wisdom to handle the leadership process with fear and trembling. Leadership is a, is a gift from you. And you are a great and merciful God, and you have displayed it perfectly in the cross of Christ. Help us to cling to the cross every second of every day. In Christ's name, amen.